Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word of the Lord. Good morning and happy new year. Uh, I sent out a video, hopefully many of you saw that, uh, with some uh, updates on the finances. want to just uh, repeat that again with some more detail. So we've, looks like we're going to end the year with $11,000 over budget with the giving. So thank God for that. Indeed. So Pastor Johnny's been talking uh, the last number of weeks, probably the last couple months, about finishing well, and we have finished well. We hit the tape uh, running with a little bit of energy left over. So praise God for that and the way that he has ministered through all of us towards the gospel work that he wants to do here at Calvary. So we are positioned well uh, for 2020 as we get into 2020. Well, 2020, we got a new year and a new sermon series. And the title of the sermon series, uh, which can be seen over my shoulder here, All Things New, The Story of the Bible, and the Healing of the World. So throughout the sermon series, we're going to be looking at the main plot line of the Bible. See how the Bible tells a single story about God's original purposes for the world, about how that purpose got thwarted very early on in the story, and then what God has been doing ever since to, to right the ship, as it were. Sometimes it's hard to discern what this single story of the Bible is, because the Bible isn't written in just straight chronological order, like a, maybe a novel or a normal book would be. And so if you've ever tried reading the Bible from front, from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, you might have lost your way somewhere in there. And what we're going to be doing is just tracking along the narrative, the single narrative that's there in Scripture. We won't cover every chapter or even every book of the Bible. We're going to hit 
the main plot line along the way and cover a number of the highlights. And then some of them will be familiar to you and uh, our Sunday school stories as they were that are reason our Sunday school stories is because they're important. Some of them will be new stories maybe for many of you that you haven't encountered uh, before if you haven't read the Bible all the way through. But we're going to be working from Genesis chapter 1 following through the story of the Bible all the way to what really we've just read today, the end of Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, the last chapter of the Bible. I've got a slide for you uh, on the screen here that gives you a general sense of how we're going to be tracking along through this year in 2020 with the story of the Bible. We're going to spend uh, the whole year uh, in this series. We'll look through February, from now to February, in the beginnings, what I'm calling beginnings, kind of the, the foundational parts of the story. Then we will, that'll take us, uh, we'll, then we'll be looking at the patriarchs through April, the age of the patriarchs, then the age of law through June, and then the age of the judges through July, the age of the kings through October, the age of captivity uh, through November, and then that'll bring us up to Advent, the start of Advent, and we'll, we will then uh, move into the time of Christ. So the plan for this year is to get all the way through the storyline as it's conveyed in the Old Testament up until the birth of Christ, the first Sunday of Advent, and then in January we'll continue with the story of Christ on into then uh, finally uh, the last days of the story in the chapters of Revelation. Next week, we're going to be introducing a Bible reading plan. So maybe, you're, maybe one of your New, Year res, New Year's resolutions is you're going to read through the Bible. This plan will follow along with our sermon series. So again, it won't cover every chapter or even every book of the Bible. But it, if you want to track along with the series, reading through the Bible with us in that, then pay attention uh, for that or watch out for that plan uh, as we unveil it next week. So here's what I want to do this morning as we get started in this new series. I want to fast forward to the end of the story, which is what we've read really in Revelation 20 and 21. And I want to highlight here at the, at the beginning of our series what the end of the story is going to be like. I want to highlight three major elements of the story's conclusion that we see in Revelation 20 and 21. And by getting a picture of what is prioritized in the end of the story, this helps us understand what is coming before that in the whole narrative arc of the story. It's going to give us a better capacity to track along with the story uh, throughout the coming series. So I'm going to highlight these three major elements of the plot that we find uh, here in Revelation 20 and 21. And then I'm going to make a general point of application as we transition in to the time uh, in, the, in the communion in the service together. All right, so the first major plot element, the first thing we see at the conclusion of the Bible's story is the defeat of the enemy. So maybe you still have your uh, Bible open to uh, Revelation 27 through 10. Revelation 27 through 10, this is the last place that Satan is mentioned in the Bible. Satan, of course, most of us know, is the villain of the story. And as we see here in his last appearance in the Bible, it doesn't end well for him. 
The entire book of Revelation is a dramatic and at times, uh, quite frankly, often confusing account of the end of the current age, which is where we find ourselves, and the transition in to the final eternal age. There's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. It can be hard to know what aspects of the book of Revelation are symbolism, what's to be taken literally. And then if we think it's symbolism, to know what the symbols are referring to can be tricky in and of itself. So the overall message, though, of Revelation is fairly straightforward. So even though there's a lot of confusing things in the book, the overall message is pretty plain. The bad guys lose, the good guys win, so be on the good guys' team. That is basically the message of the book of Revelation. Really, you could even say that's the basic message of the entire book of the Bible. Nearly everything that happens in the book of Revelation is recounting how in this final, uh, final sequence of events in God's story that he's writing in the history of the world, evil is defeated and humanity is re-enthroned. And it's noteworthy that as Revelation finishes up the Bible's conclusion of the story, so much of the attention given in the conclusion of the story is given to the defeat of our enemy. All throughout the book of Revelation, it's a major theme. If you've ever actually tried reading through the book of Revelation, you'll note that Satan makes many, and his, and his evil minions, as it were, makes many uh, uh, frequent appearances, and there's warfare and conflict, and it's the demise of Satan and his armies. And I think that's because every good story typically hinges on the villain of the story his diabolical aims, and his then subsequent defeat. Arguably, without a villain, you really almost can't even have a good story. Imagine that someone asked you to give a summary of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. But the caveat is you couldn't mention the Lord of the Rings. There wouldn't even be a story to tell. Now, for those of you poor folks who have never read The Lord of the Rings, and maybe never even seen the movie, you might not know that The Lord of the Rings is the villain of the story. The whole story is named after the villain. You can't have the story, The Lord of the Rings, without the character, the villain, The Lord of the Rings. The story of the Bible really is no different. Christian theology has always underscored the import of Satan in the plot line of Scripture. So we're going to be doing the same in this series, focusing on this. But throughout the series, I want to press us in a slightly different direction than what many of us may be familiar with when we think about Satan's place in the storyline of Scripture. For most of us, when we, many of us, when we think about the chief conflict of the Bible, we can think of it as either... A, between God and sinful humanity, and that that's the main tension of the Bible that needs to be resolved, or B, between God and the devil, these cosmic forces waging war above our heads, and we're kind of the collateral damage. The conflict between Satan and humanity, then, is often viewed from those perspectives as an unintended kind of minor consequence or plot line. 
Like in World War II, when Germany was taking over Europe and it invaded Poland, it intended to go to war with Poland, but it didn't think that Britain and France would really come into war to defend Poland. And so Germany ended up inadvertently at war with France and England, not intending to. So from that kind of perspective, Satan goes into conflict with God and inadvertently ends up in conflict with humanity. But that actually isn't the way that the story unfolds. So we're going to come to see in the coming weeks, the primary and initial conflict of the Bible's story is actually between Satan and humanity. Indeed, Satan ends up in conflict with God only because he was first in conflict with humanity. And we can see that basic idea here in Revelation 20, 7, 10 at the conclusion of this conflict. Note here that Satan and his forces are not attacking God in 27 through 10. The final climactic moment. Who is Satan attacking in, two, in 27 through 10? It's not God. It's... Is it where you are, Mark Gershman? Saints. Yes. It rhymes with ain'ts, starts with S. It's saints. That's right. He attacks the saints, right? Satan is not attacking God. Satan is attacking the saints, humanity. This in miniature, in conclusion, is how the conflict of Scripture works, not only in Revelation, but throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible and through the book of Revelation, humanity is not collateral damage in a celestial war between God and Satan. Rather, God enters into an existing war that is taking place between Satan and humanity because Satan has first attacked the crown jewel of God's creation. Adam and Eve. Satan, in the first act of the play, very early on in the story, Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of the Bible, kills humanity, usurps humanity's throne, and sets himself up as the world's tyrant king. That begins, then, the unfolding of the entire plot that will come. The great contest of the biblical narrative is not between God and Satan, as though that could even be a contest. It's not between God and Satan warring over heaven's throne, but rather between Satan and humanity warring over the world's throne. All throughout the writings of the early church, Satan is very frequently referred to as the enemy. It's his name or his reference, the enemy. And when the church fathers would refer to Satan as the enemy, they weren't thinking of Satan primarily as the enemy of God, but rather the enemy of humanity, or the enemy of God's chosen, the saints. Second Peter in Second Peter does a similar thing. He references to the Christians. He, he says, beware of your enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. The enemy, the chief enemy in the scriptural narrative is the enemy of humanity. Jesus enters the story as the new and the second Adam, the true and perfect human, in order to reclaim from the Dark Lord what we had lost to him in the beginning. Jesus, as a true human being, defeats humanity's mortal foe, the devil, and reasserts the dominion of humanity over creation as God had intended all along. 
Now, all of this unfolds gradually, gradually throughout the biblical narrative. Satan makes a big appearance early on in the story, and that sets up the plot that will then unfold. But then Satan recedes back into the shadows, as it were, controlling things from the background. He's a bit like the Emperor Palpatine in episodes uh, of Star Wars episodes uh, 7 and 8, right? Who we thought he was dead, but he really wasn't dead. He was just in the background, right? Well, Satan, we don't think he's dead, but we think we don't know where he's gone. Satan goes back into the shadows of the story. And he doesn't really come out of the shadows fully until the appearance of Jesus in the New Testament. He makes little appearances along the way, but really we won't see him in full force again until the days of Jesus in the New Testament. So Satan's not going to be making frequent appearances in our plot this year, but we will be catching occasional dark rumors of him. And it's important to know at the outset that the story really doesn't make sense without factoring him into the sequence of the story. So we're going to need to keep in mind the key role that Satan plays in the narrative, the conflict that is initiated early on, and how Christ's coming is related to the resolution of this conflict and the defeat of our enemy. We, here in 2020, sit in an epoch of the biblical timeline after the first advent of Jesus 2,000 years ago, a time now, today, when Satan's power is no longer veiled but is more present and overt. And it's good for us to remember in this age the admonition of the Apostle Paul who wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 that our warfare, the conflict that we encounter is not against the earthly powers. It's not against our fellow man, but it's against the dark spiritual powers of the enemy. And it's also good for us to remember, in the midst of that conflict, the doom that has been foretold of our chief enemy. So, so Revelation 20 gives us this picture of the defeat of our enemy. The second thing we see at the conclusion of the Bible story is humanity's reunion with God. The devil's... Uh, usurpation of humanity's throne was successful precisely because he deceived us into separating ourselves from God. God is the source of all human life. We do not live on our own. We are not self-sustaining. We cannot give ourselves life. Even in the creation account itself, Adam and Eve are created inert, and God must give them his own breath. He must breathe into them the breath of life. We live by the breath of God. Our lives depend upon our union with him. As the Apostle Paul tells the philosophers in Athens, that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We were created to be in union with God, to need and require union with him. But the entire creation story goes wrong, the entire story of the Bible goes wrong when humanity is deceived by Satan into going its own way, independent of God. The deceit of the devil is you don't need God. You can be your own gods, your own self-sustaining force, and we couldn't. If Satan makes infrequent appearances in the Old Testament, the fruit of his assault upon humanity makes frequent appearances. We see the work that he has sown all throughout the storyline of the Old Testament. When we foolishly separated ourselves from the life of God, 
And that is the first and original sin of humanity, to separate ourselves from the life of God. We fell headlong into violence and ultimately into death. The whole telling of the story of the Bible from the Genesis chapter 3 on, really the whole account of human history, to just even go to our history books and we look at the story of the world, it is marked by violence and by death. It's not to say that there aren't still traces of the beauty that God had built into the original creation, but it is to say that violence and death has become norm in our world. God had created the world to be something beautiful. And we were to be a key part in helping it get to its appointed consummation and its end of beauty. But then we shipwrecked ourselves, and the whole world has suffered the effect of that shipwreck. Humanity, in union with God, is life to the world. But humanity, separated from God, is death to the world, death and destruction. Mercifully, the story of the Bible, the story of the world, doesn't end in death and destruction. The story ends with humanity back in union with God. Look at Revelation 21, then 1 through 3. John, who is the apostle who has this vision and has recorded it for us in Revelation 21, he looks and he sees a vision of, the, of a new heaven and a new earth, and he sees the vision of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven to the earth. The new Jerusalem is Jesus' kingdom. It's his people. And Jesus brings his rule and his reign to earth. When he, the scriptures talk about Jesus coming again. This is a vision of Jesus coming again. He brings his people with him back to the earth. And we are described in this vision, the people of God are described as a bride adorned for her husband. The husband, of course, is Christ. The people of God are the bride. The metaphor of marriage is used all throughout the New Testament. Jesus uses it frequently in his teachings. It's even found at places in the Old Testament prophets. But it's used to describe our relationship with God through Christ, that we have a relationship with God through Christ that is very much like the relationship between the husband and wife. Imagine the most loving, self-giving oneness that exists between a husband and a wife. The most perfect human marriage you can conceive of. That's how the Bible invites us to think about what our relationship with God through Christ will one day be like. When a man and a woman come together, their lives become one, and everything that is the husband becomes the wife, and everything that is the wife's becomes the husband. This shared life, this union that exists between the two of them, that is what it is to enter back into relationship with God, to be married to God through Christ. Everything of ours has already become his. Our sin, our death, our rebellion, our ignorance, our foolishness, our folly, and everything that is his has started to become and one day will fully become ours. His life, his rule, his wisdom, his goodness, his power, his love. And when the true Lord of creation, the true and better Adam, returns in the end at last for his bride, he will unite us to himself and raise us up with him to rule and reign with him 
in God's good creation. Really, we could say that the the whole story of the Bible is like a, a wonderful fairy tale, not in the sense that it's not true or that it's fanciful, but in the sense that it follows the classic plot line of a fairy tale. The fair maiden is tricked and seduced and through her foolishness is stolen by the dragon. And so the young prince rides to her rescue on a white stallion, Revelation 19, and slays the dragon and takes the young maiden home as his bride to rule and reign with him in his father's kingdom. This is the story of the Bible. It's a very good story. In fact, some have even thought, and I think rightly, that this is the archetypal story of all stories, that every good story that we like is just another version or iteration of the dragon being defeated and the fair maiden being rescued. This is the story that God tells us, not only in the Bible, but with the unfolding of human history. And then the final thing we see here in this picture that we have of the end of the story, the last major element is an element that I've tried to capture in the subtitle of our sermon series. I was trying to decide which element I should pick as the one to focus on. But this is an element that I think is often short shrifted. And so in our sermon series, the subtitle is The Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. And I chose that title because I think this is one of the most or more neglected aspects of the story. For reasons that aren't important for us to go into in the present right now, many of us don't tend to think of the story of the Bible as ending in the healing of the world, but rather in the destruction of the world. I mean, after all, don't we all end up as souls in heaven, living with God and the angels, free at last from the confines of this mortal coil, this fallen and capricious planet? Is that how we often are taught or subtly think about the way that the story ends? It ends with us leaving all of this behind to go live with God in his home. That's actually not the picture that we have here. Look what John tells us. John, in verse 1 of chapter 21, he sees a new heaven, meaning the stars, the galaxies, what we look up to and we see in the sky at night, and a new earth. The ending of the story is not that we go to live with God in heaven, but that God comes to live with us in the person of Jesus here on earth. Look in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The end of the story is not us escaping this fallen world to go live in God's home, but rather it's God coming down into our home and then healing our home, restoring our home, repairing our home. Psalm 15, 115.16 says, uh, 115.16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man from texts that we can find in Isaiah, also from Romans 8, 2 Peter 3, really throughout the whole Bible, we see that God's intent all along has been to heal the earth, not to destroy it. John tells us in verse 4 of 21 that there is a day coming in this new earth when God will wipe away every tear. 
He will put death to death. He will heal every hurt. The old earth, this present earth in which we live on right now, will be restored and transformed into a new earth in the same way that our old bodies, the one that we live in right now, will be restored and transformed into new bodies. The resurrection of our bodies is really a picture or parallels the resurrection of the earth. The end of the story of the Bible is then the consummation of every earthly desire, perhaps not in the ways that we in our sinfulness or our naivety might imagine it, but God's intent is not to destroy the earth, but to redeem it. It is not his intent to take away our home, but to come to it and to make it new and to give it back to us. God has created us as humans. He didn't make us as angels. His destiny for us is not to go join the angels in heaven. He created us as humans with human desires and human needs. He's made us for the earth, and he's made the earth for us. And so it's here on this earth that will be raised from the dust, even as the dust itself is raised. And it's here that those who are in Christ will be reunited with each other and with God. It's here that we will smell again the freshness of spring, hear once more the sound of a loved one's voice, and see as if for the first time, every time, the beauty of a sunrise. And the glory of this happy ending isn't simply that we get our home back, as though God's kind of sole purpose in existing is to give us all the material blessings that we've ever wanted so we can have our best life, not only now, but for all of eternity. The glory of the healed world is that it reveals God to us, who is our life. Just as Jesus' visible incarnation reveals the invisible deity of the Godhead. Do you remember when Jesus was with his disciples and his disciples said to him, just, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, haven't I been with you for so long and you still do not know me? If you've seen me in the flesh, you've seen the Father. To see Jesus in his incarnation, his tangible, tactile incarnation, is to see God himself. And so, too, the whole visible world. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that when God made all of creation, he made it in such a way that it conveyed, it revealed, that it demonstrated and showed the invisible attributes and powers of God. Satan and our own sin has messed up the iconic nature of creation. An icon is something that points beyond itself to, to some other reality. Right? Creation is meant to not be its own thing, but to point beyond itself and through itself to some greater reality, the greater reality of which is God. But Satan and our own sin, we've messed up our capacity to make use of creation as an avenue or a window to see God. So often creation does not point us towards God, but distracts us from God. But Christ comes and he restores it all. He restores our capacity to see creation, and he restores capacities creation to be seen. When the enemy has been cast down, and we are reunited with God, and this great created world has been healed, 
Creation will no longer be a distraction that turns our gaze away from God, but will become the very means through Christ by which we look to see the wondrous glory of God who is our life and chief end. God is making all things new so that we can see him through all things that he has made, him who is our life. All right, now this story the Bible has laid out for us and that we're going to be exploring invites us to step into it and to live into it. So let me just make one point of application here as we turn towards the table. The Bible reveals, the story of the Bible reveals the grain of the world, as it were. It reveals how the world works, who we are, who God is, what our purpose is, what our future is, what we should be about. When we understand and embrace the story of the Bible, it's like cutting with the grain of life. But when we ignore this story and instead choose to live into other stories, because we can't not live into a story, we're all going to have some story we live into. We may not have thought through that story very well. We may not even be aware of what our story is. But we all have some story we're living into. And when we choose to live into some other story besides the story of the Bible, we're going to find ourselves cutting against the grain of the world. Because the story of the Bible really is just the Bible's story of the world. And if the Bible's story is true, then the Bible's story about the world is true. Have you perhaps felt at times, perhaps you feel like it this morning, that you are cutting against the grain of life, that life isn't working in the way that it should? Perhaps it's because you've been trying to live out a story that isn't connected to reality. You've been trying to live out a story of fame or pleasure or comfort or success or wealth or popularity or whatever other lie the world is telling you. Living your life into the rhythm of those lesser stories will only leave you feeling drained, frayed, and empty. God invites us to embrace and to live into the rhythm of his story, the true story, the story of the world as it really is. And my prayer for all of us throughout this series is not that we would just come to know the story of the Bible so that we could teach a class on it or we could recount it all, right? Just intellectual knowledge. It's not that we would just know the story of the Bible, but that we would come to know the God who wrote the Bible, the God who wrote the story, and in doing so, that we would find the life, the true life of the world that God is for us in Jesus Christ. So let's pray to that end together that as we embark on this journey through the story of the Bible, that we would meet the God who wrote the story, is writing the story, and will bring it all to its appropriate and happy conclusion.